It is the 20th of May, 2014, and this is episode 115 of the audio podcast, Yay! Logic, Yay! in this update. Yay! Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! Audio podcast time! Okay, we'll get to the, we'll get to the, um, the perennial question later. First of all, introductions and all that stuff get out of the way. I'm Samuel Freeman, and... Um, that was Scott Hewitt. We've also got Adam Yanch getting through it fast today. The show notes are on theaudiopodcast.co.uk slash show slash 115. Follow through. There you yeah. go. Yeah, and don't forget you can contact the audio podcast in several ways. Probably our favourite is uh, email show at theaudiopodcast.co.uk and you can also get in contact at Twitter, which is at theaudiopodcast. Uh, and also, remember, we're a podcast. You might be watching us live on YouTube right now, but uh, you can also get us through iTunes, Stitcher, Gpodder, you know, these uh, podcast platforms. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can download us there. Shall we begin, gentlemen? Yes. Okay, so news. Focusrite have announced a new Sapphire Pro, the Sapphire Pro 26 which is 18 in, 8 out, Firewire slash Thunderbolt sort of, well, yeah, Thunderbolt compatible audio interface. Yeah, I, I actually went to their, when I went to their website, and it says, you know, big, it says Firewire, and it's like, fine, that's okay. Uh, and Thunderbolt, I was like, ooh, a Thunderbolt interface, and when you look at the picture, there's just a, a Firewire port on there. So they're basically just making sure you know that it can work over Thunderbolt, but there isn't actually a Thunderbolt port there. Uh, but otherwise, you know, we've got uh, quite a decent-looking piece of kit here. Yeah, I, I thought it was... I, I too, was uh, intrigued as to the FireWire Thunderbolt kind of support issue, which is why I went along. And to be fair, they actually... They don't make any... It is quite obvious once you move away from the immediate headline spiel, and they even have a little commentary as to why they've done why they've made the decision to keep making Firewire interfaces. But what I thought was interesting was the way that they they chatted about how we're going to make Firewire interfaces because they provide backward compatibility because only new machines have Thunderbolt without obviously acknowledging the fact that actually new machines only have Thunderbolt. Because can you... I suspect there probably is a couple... uh, Actually, maybe there aren't. I'm saying there's maybe some iMacs still available that have Firewire ports on them. No, not th- not IMAX. Uh, the Mac Mini, I think, because the actual chassis, the actual mm. design hasn't been updated in so long, the Mac Mini still has a FireWire 800 port on it. Uh, and also, if they're still selling a MacBook Pro 13-inch that's not a Retina screen version, that will have FireWire 800 on it as well. But anything that's been redesigned in the last by Apple in the last year or two they will have expunged those because they've moved to a new set, a new chipset, and so the chipset comes with Thunderbolt, but it doesn't come with Firewire. That's basically how those things kind of work. No, that, that's true. I, I thought it was interesting as a discussion because I I wasn't convinced by what they what they suggested actually, simply because I I would suggest to you that the vast majority of people buy certainly in kind of professional audio world's world. You, you buy a computer, you buy an interface to go with it, and generally your interface outlives your computer to until, you know, the connectivity stops. 
basically sort of stuff like that. You know, like so basically you're saying it's a better idea to actually have a proper Thunderbolt interface because that may last a lot longer. Although, so what about Final the PC Iris market? Supported over, is supported over Thunderbolt, so it's moot really, unless oh, some kind of incompatibility exists in future years. Yeah. Is Thunderbolt oh, rolling yeah. on Windows machines now? Or... Yeah, I think uh, the reason why it's not been adopted very highly by PC manufacturers is because of the licensing fees that are required by Intel to use the technology. So that's that's what's stopping Thunderbolt in a in a wider sense is because it's expensive. It adds expense to the actual thing beyond just putting the hardware in the box. Especially as your Thunderbolt, obviously the Thunderbolt interface, which is the future, like we have to, it has been decreed as the future and that's what it is. But right now it really offers additional connectivity for devices that don't generally exist. And if they do exist, don't actually require that kind of it, that kind of element, you know, like we can most of the things that people are doing over Thunderbolt, they could have done over Firewire anyway. The only exception being things like 4K cinema, you know, 4K monitors and running multiple 4K monitors, of which there's very little hardware around that can actually do that. And the few and and the most common of that hardware is actually things like the Mac Pros, which yeah. are Thunderbolt ready sort of style. So that's why the Mac Pro has got five or six. Thunderbolt ports on it because it's really designed. It's got the graphics horsepower to run so many screens at once. But, you know, your general, I mean, I don't know. I'd say in a couple of years we might actually see an audio interface or several audio interfaces with a Thunderbolt port on. But uh, before then, you know, it's okay. The the, the, have I tried it with my current computer? I'm not sure if I've if I've tried connecting with a interconnection cable, a Thunderbolt Firewire cable, but I can't say I've had any problems. Oh well, it it is important to note that Thunderbolt has been has been built with the concept that you will be able to contain pre-existing data pre-existing data formats inside it. So it is built with the idea that you can run. Firewire inside it, and that you can run USB 3 inside it, and even things like Ethernet can run inside it. It's been built from the ground up to do that. It's just we, you know, experience teaches us that the most simple answer is always, is generally the best answer. But plus, also, if you know, we're going to be relying on people supporting Firewire through Thunderbolt. How long is that really going to last for? Because it's not like Firewire was the triumphant victor of all connectivity formats, was it really? <laughs> you know. But it is the the one... I mean, I suppose USB has caught up significantly in the last three or four years when it comes to audio interfaces. But really, Firewire was there first. If you didn't have a computer that could take a PCI card, then Firewire was the way to go. The early USB one interfaces, I remember being fairly dreadful. And uh, there were quality problems, performance issues, the drivers went up to scratch, and then they were kind of improved over time. But now, you know, USB 2, USB 3, USB is a much more competent audio connection interface, but it's whatever, you know, as, as long as there's, as long as there's compatibility, PCs have got USB 2 and 3, so they're fine. 
Apple Macs, new ones have got Thunderbolt, which support Firewire, so they're fine. I don't know about Linux, uh, I guess USB, and they have some drives written for them by the audio manufacturers. We're fine, no problem. <laughs> Shall we go back to the actual uh, object of our discussion, the Focusrite Sapphire Pro 26? Uh, it's got four pre preamps on the front, so that's a useful addition. ADA SPDIF, the Sapphire Mix Control, which will be Focusrite's uh, thingy software that allows you to do all the blah. Uh, it's got Jet PLL, Jet Elimination Technology. You know, it, it's basically there. It's basically a, a Firewire stroke Thunderbolt interface for multiple channels. Yeah. It's yeah, it's fine. It's, there, there's no I, I I don't know if you'd agree or not, but I felt there was nothing that was either remarkable nor particularly disappointing, just a very competent yeah. and I'm certain focus right interfaces were always pretty solid. I'm sure it'd be a nice Oh I remember them back in two thousand and eight stroke nine being there were some weird problems with the order in which you started up your computer and started up the interface. Sometimes you'd start them up and we had them at uni and they would just emit full-scale noise if you did it in the wrong order, which is great. You know, that's exactly what you want is, is, is noise blasting at you from an errant interface. But I think that that's sorted now. And, yeah, I think you're right. Focusrite, obviously, very good with their audio technology, their analog audio technology. So their preamps should be pretty decent. I've used the um, Sapphire Pro interfaces in the past couple of years and have had no problems whatsoever. Yep, they're, they're well-built, solid little things. And um, I'm pretty sure the one I was using had MIDI on it, which this one doesn't. It's very, it's, this is focusing just on the audio, of course. But I do like to see MIDI connections. Just, it saves you having an extra thing plugged in if you want. No, you're not hardcore enough if you don't have an independent MIDI interface. Yeah, I suppose. I like the optical in on this. Like, well, it's, it's ADAT in, which is, you know, pretty old as well, but it gives you that like, extra eight channels on the digital input, which is most likely to be used for extra analogs for an Octopri or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh. So there we go. Let's move there we on, go. shall we? In, indeed so. Uh, Native Instruments have announced the release of Session Horns Pro, which is an upgrade to Session Horns. Really? <gasps> how, how big is that sample library, Scott? It's uh, 30 gig. 30 gig. Wow. And what and it features what three saxophones, two trombones, three trumpets, a tuba, and a flugelhorn. flugelhorn. And go. you can work with them either as solo instruments or in section, or as kind of a section. And and how many yen is it, Scott? How many yen? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. I just copied <laughs> it off the. They sent me a press release with prices on it. No, everybody does that. So I was like, you know what? It's quite nice that they did actually. So it's uh, <laughs> thirty-four thousand eight hundred yen. There we go. Forty-nine pounds. $299 euros, $299. Use your favorite currency converter to uh, to figure out that. Or you can go to their website and find the actual price in, in your actual currency. So. That would be ace if we did like if we quoted all prices in an obscure currency. That would be fantastic fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, such as it is, if you're a present if you're a current owner of Session Horns, then you can run an upgrade. Um there you go. I'm, you know, I don't know if there's anything else to say about it. Really, it's it's what it is. No, not really. I, I think, think the next one's on. much. 
the next one is more interesting as a news item, not to say that Native Instruments aren't interesting and their release of Session Horns Plus Pro isn't interesting, but um, XRS Lab have released the EMS VCS4 em emulation. So this is a emulation of a VCS4. Now, there's a couple of fun, fun quizzes here. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but you might, listeners, and I don't know if you guys have read the story or not, but listeners amongst us will be thinking, well, Scott, I know what the VCS3 is, which we talked about a few weeks ago, but I've never heard of a VCS4, and for a company like EMS to have a synthesizer that you wouldn't have heard of is quite a, you know, their their equipment is the, is the you know, the, the content of lore. People write stories about these things, sort of stuff. Wow, and actual it, stories. Actual Amazing. stories. And so it turns out that the VCS4 was the follow-up to the VCS3, which was only ever prototyped and never actually released as a product. And what it was was two VCS3s connected together. Mm. And this... was the VCS6 then. Well, well perhaps, yes. So this... And I thought this was really cool. I think this is a great, great thing what we've got here. So what this, what this actually is, um, what, what XILS4 actually is, is an emulation of a prototyped but never released analog synthesizer. It's basically, it's an emulation of a non-existent synthesizer. No, it, it did exist. There was one of them. It didn't exist in, I've never heard of a VCS-4. So, no, no, but it did. I mean, it, it didn't exist in in any sense, in any way that we can compare it to, to the thing that it's emulating. So they might as well just say, hey, here's a double VCS-3. Although I suppose there's a yeah there is a kind of nice dramatic element to it by saying it's a a, a non-released synthesizer. Yeah. What do you think, Sam? Um, I was skipping over that. I wanted to ask what a polyphonic LFO is. How can an LFO be polyphonic? Because this thing's got five of them, and I was thinking about it. And at first, I didn't want sure. Maybe it's due because the way that the way that you connect units together, it's kind of a modular system, but instead of using patch cords, it has this matrix where you kind of have inputs on one on one axis and outputs on the other, and you put a pin in where you want to connect an input to an output. So I suppose you can connect an LFO to multiple outputs by putting pins on the same row to different That's destinations. not really though, is it? That's not That's, really. So no, what polyphonic means that it surely means that each oscillator has its own LFO. And each LFO can, it's about triggering. So rather than an LFO triggering on every, on all of the, all of the oscillators at once, which is how a, a, a global one will work, your LFOs are actually tied to each oscillator separately and can be triggered either together or separately. So each oscillator can have a different, say, uh, vibrato, for example, running at once. So rather than all of the oscillators together being vibratoed at once using the same settings, each can have different settings. That's what that's what I would say a polyphonic LFO is. What do you think, Scott? I have done no um, I've I've done no research on this topic, so I would be uh, hesitant to either endorse or disagree with either of your suggestions, other than to suggest that both are plausible. I think that, Sam, what you're explaining is more a um, multiple, it's a patch bay thing, a matrix thing. So you can actually have the source of the LFO go to multiple things at the same time. 
or or have multiple things affect the LFO at the same time. But it's not the same concept as a polyphonic LFO. Well, this software emulation of a prototyped but never released piece of hardware is available as either a 32-bit or a 64-bit virtual instrument on Mac OS 10.3.9 upwards as AAX, AU, RTS, and VST, and for XP, Vista, and 7 for AAX, RTS, and VST, which mm. struck me as a slightly weird set of compatibility statements, actually, because normally things say 10.6 and Vista 7 and 8. So it's a bit curious as to... That, that is what the information... I've double-checked it. That's what the information says. I'm a little bit curious as to the accuracy of, of that Does information, it, actually. Does it, but I didn't get a response to clarify it. So. Hold on. If it goes down to 10.3.9, that means that it will work on a PowerPC platform. Well, I presume I don't think it won't. But... I, I don't think 10.3.9 was ever on Intel. Hmm. Well, there, there we go. I, I was a little bit, you know... I, I have some... <laughs> Yes, there you go. Okay. So what, what I'm saying okay. is, having announced have, having announced the compatibility, I don't really I'm not really sure it's right. <laughs> okay. Can, can you get it as a as a physical thing as well? Like a go to the shop and actually buy the physical version, or is it download only? I think it's download only. It's iLock or eLicense protected. Which again oh, is unusual true. to have. I've, you don't often have things that have both options on that, or do you? I've, usually it's one or the other. But it's a shame because it means that we can't fire rifles at it. That is that is very true. If you want to find out more about it, though, go look online. All the information you need is there. But we should get back to the shooting of objects, Adam. Yes. Well, uh, if if you can't buy the Zills VCS4 as a physical thing. Download the 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 digital version and then fire rifles at it using samples. Vintage rifles at your vintage synth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, these two go together like cookies and cream. So uh, the the recordist is actually offering a set of vintage rifle samples for sale. Amazing. There you go. <laughs> Yep, uh, the recordist, as we interviewed in show 47, has announced the release of Firearm Foley. So this is um, a variety of vintage rifles recorded at 24-bit, 96K. There you go. I'm saying, I don't think there's anybody else who really does this stuff to the quality he does it. At the same point, obviously, the fact that I believe he lives on a ranch in the middle of nowhere does allow him to do these things far more <laughs> easily than, say, I would be able to. <laughs> yes, living in the centre of Manchester. Living in the centre of Manchester. If I was to start offloading rounds, I suspect there would be a... Um, yes. That would make for an interesting sample as long as if you just kept it recording, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. yeah. The sound of a door being broken down. <laughs> the, the sound of the police coming and arresting you. Of the raid. It would be a unique sample library. So the Firearm Foley sample library has an introductory price of $40 until the end of this week, May the 25th. So if you're interested, wham on over to the website. You can get the link through our notes at theaudiopodcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash 115. And with that, we have came to the end of the news. But as always, we should ask Adam the perennial question. Adam, has there been a logic update? No, no, there hasn't. Have you checked? But wait! Have you... But wait. <laughs> 
I'm actually lying. There has been a logic update. Oh my, it's amazing. I, it's been so long that I actually was just not expecting it to happen. But yes, Apple have indeed released Logic Pro X 10.0.7. Incredible. Incredible. There we go. Um, I don't know, I'm relying on you as our logic user and the one who is most confused about this matter to have, to, to have perhaps uh, offer us the most detail if required. Um, I, I'd like to immediately jump to my favorite uh, bug fixes, which are the highlights of every release, as far every minor point release, as far as I'm concerned. So, Adam, I guess that you're uh, taking a lot of um, a lot of comfort in the fact that um, Logic no longer sometimes quits unexpectedly when you drag audio from the project audio window to the tracks area, when you mm -hmm. insert a blank recordable DVD when Logic is running, and my all-time favorite bug fix ever. Performing undo after certain operations. That must have been a real killer. That one there. A... All of those and more, Scott. Um, if you actually head to the to the 10.0.7 uh, bug fixes list, it's huge. It's really long, which shows that maybe Apple could have done this in like two or three releases because the last release was in January, so it's been four months, and they have squashed a lot of bugs. I'll say that, and they have fixed the one that was troubling me, which was I was trying to set up my Protus 2000 to have uh, bank change messages within Logic, and the window that you do that through, whenever I opened it, it would crash Logic. But now it, it works. It works. Why? So I've been able to set up my custom bank messages. Um, I spent about four hours yesterday typing in the patch names of all the patches in my Proteus 2000. Yeah? Yeah, that's pretty nice. decent. Pretty good. Uh, I like um, the way that the bug is reported it, that um, Logic sometimes quits unexpectedly when doing the multi-instrument environment change, whereas your experience was a every time. But I think uh, it's more to do with... It happened for me every time, but I haven't had any problem... Well, I've never... My Mac Mini doesn't have a DVD drive installed. And I'd, or okay. I I wasn't using I wasn't inserting a blank DVD when Logic was running or something, but the other two I haven't had any trouble with. So I think it's these weird bugs that happen to some people, and not others. Don't know the uh, the 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 bank change window thing is fairly obscure. Not many people need mm -hmm. to use that. So. The, the, that is true. If if we were going to offer some uh, take takeaway advice, as you know, it's sometimes nice to give our sage like advice out to people in the search like this. It did strike me that you know, if if you're in the process of doing something in Logic and you decide to put a DVD into your computer, is that's you know, I'm saying that 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 in the old days of Windows XP, shall we say, that was just <laughs> you know, like it would be stupid to do that. You know, I mean, there, there was a point. I'm I'm sure you guys are both old enough to remember when we when it used to be recommended that you turned off wireless. Do you remember those days? It was like a, to do what? To do any audio work. That was the first. You know, you was it was oh, almost like you turned off the yeah on a PC. You would turn off the wireless connection before you did anything. Well, that yeah, was like, that's just because Windows XP was terrible. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it's just you know what I mean. Like I, I remember reading that, and I was thinking, why would you put a DVD into your computer while you're working in Logic? Like, why would you? Why would you put well, like you, one in there? But you, you might be doing something in the background. You might be burning like archives off, or you might yeah. want to. I don't know if Logic does burning of DVD uh, of movie because you can work with movies in Logic. So 
Oh, that would have been an awesome feature if it did that. If there was some button that said export your finished product, your finished project now, and then it said insert a blank DVD, and then it quit. That would have been awesome. <laughs> well, it's similar to the problem I was having, which is you go to a particular window and the whole program crashes and there's nothing that can be done. But lots of bugs have been fixed and they've also added a few um, other bits and pieces. I would say they should have released this as Logic Pro X 10.1 because, you know, it's a significant enough upgrade and we've waited long enough for it. But anyway, I think we can now call an end to the perennial question of is there a, a Logic update because... Uh, yeah, I'm I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. That, yeah, that, that's that is very true. That's very true. Well, with that, we have actually made it to the end of the news. So that means it is plunder time. It's like that, and appropriately so. I thought a, a great little a great little video for us of a format which very rarely crashes and very rarely suffers from bugs, but lives on nonetheless. The magnetic tape. This is a very enjoyable little video where, yeah, 80 years they're citing the cassette tape as being in existence. Like, we talk about MIDI being around forever, but 80 years. Uh, just, let me just put the brakes on right there. The okay. compact cassette has not been around for 80 years. But tape... tape so, magnetic tape? tape? Well, magnetic tape's been around for longer than that, surely. All right. No, I think but, compact tape but, has been around 80 years, but no, you are no, right that compact magnetic tape has been around the, even longer. The compact cassette has not been around for 80 years. The compact cassette was not invented in the 30s. The compact cassette was released originally in, like, the 70s? Yeah, no, I no, think did, I think no. I, I'm, I'm going to. I, I think maybe compact cassette is possibly part of the issue here, part of the issue in the descriptor as well. But there is a cassette. There was open reel to reel. There was enclosed reel to open open tape, kind of reel to reel stuff in a cartridge, and be and that is that is the first cassette, not cassette compact cassette, but the tape. actual cassette. And they are 40s. There were cassette cassette in, style tapes, yes, 40s. because the the eight track tape cartridge type thing that mm. was around before the compact. compact cassette but the compact cassette means that the very particular format that we used to listen to on Walkman when we were younger oh uh, yeah but th th this is a video about the history of tape mm, not compact cassette I, I have to put my hand up and say that I actually found this video incredibly annoying oh. I, <laughs> I, I mean there's a lot wrong with it um, and the, the primary thing is that there's a guy who's basically sh talking very quickly at you the whole thing it's like what you couldn't actually put some other shots of cassettes or something into your video to mask all the edits or something I that's an intentional style thing like and the edits and mm. stuff that make the talking incredibly fast there's like there's no breathing in there it's just straight on to it's just full on talking yeah but it, it, there's a, it's just it's problematic. They don't even mention Schaefer. They don't, they don't mention Pierre Schaefer. The dude mentioned some guy I've never heard of as being some kind of tape splicing pioneer. But he didn't mention Pierre Schaefer, who is probably the number one for certain people anyway. 
But that was I kind of liked that because it made me want to go back, get that name that I'd never heard before, and search it. It's like okay, we, he could have he, he avoided mentioning the obvious and like put in something. No, he that didn't avoid know. mentioning the obvious. He, oh, you could have said both of them. You could have said Pierre Schaefer. You could have said Karl Stockhausen, and then you could have said this other guy. And then at least it would be like okay, you know what you're talking about. But now I, I, I'm like you've just gone on Wikipedia and just found the name of some guy. Or some person told you about this guy who used to splice tape, so you're just going to say his name. So, yeah, that, that's very true. I I do the thing that reminded me here. It's been a project that I've been interested in for a while. Is that I I have often wondered whether there is a kind of unknown. How much of the history of kind of tape is perhaps actually unknown? Because it should be noted that during the Second World War, the Germans became the Germans did a lot of work on tape which became the stuff that we kind of you know when you're discussing like kind of Schaefer or like Michael Henry would be the other the, the more actually more known for his cassette work perhaps his tape work perhaps um you know the work that they're doing at the point they're doing it is actually on the back of recovered German technology by the Allies at the end of the Second World War so I, I've always mm -hmm. wondered how much goes in at that sort of point because the, the, the German I mean it's Sorry. It's kind of interesting that, but it's it's an American name, isn't it? I think the guy gives or something. Uh, no, I think it sounds Scandinavian to me. It sounded like it could be Norwegian, but then Norway were allied with the not with no, the they, Allies. No, they were neutral, were they not? I believe. Oh, you know what? This is not Second is World War history podcast. <laughs> miles right now. I'm saying it's like it's one thing for us to talk about random topics which we know something about. It's another thing to delve into. <laughs> The history of nations when we know nothing about it, have no research on the topic. We're just going to anger people. Like right now, our Norwegian listener base, which I, which I, I can approximate is very, very small, are, are probably enraged or okay. Perhaps they're enraged in some way. So please I apologize, Norwegian use, listener base of the audio podcast. I am talking from watching a documentary or a, a, a series. A three-minute, three-second Documentary. No, 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 no. This, oh, okay. something else about the Second World War, not about. Okay. The, the so tape's been around for a long time. The cassette, perhaps not as long, but still a long time. And cassettes continue to be awesome because they work. And you can stop it in the middle of a song, go away, come back three days later, press play, and it'll carry on from exactly where you got to, yeah, without yeah. any like time it takes, without no, no data reading speeding it up. You know, don't have to wait for the disc to speed up or anything. There's oh, no yeah. searching. It's just right where you left it. Okay, but go from track one to track nine, like that. Ooh, you can't. Is this ah. on an album? I'm gonna say, is this on an album though? Never know. What? I had a, on an album. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just playing here. I can't remember the name of the album. I had an album where you could listen to track three, stop it, flip the tape round, and listen to like track seven. And then at the end of track seven, stop it and flip the tape round and listen to track three. They were the exact length on the exact opposite sides of the tape. <laughs> was it intended? I don't know, but I always remember it to this day. I can't. What's the name of the album? I can't remember the name of the album, but I remember there was a cassette album that let me do that, and I thought it was incredible. Was mm. like, there you go. That's the only way you can do that, but you don't get instant <laughs> access like you do on a CD. But if it's an album you know really well, you can. And if you know the tape machine well, you can kind of. Yeah, but you can't do like, it. becomes like an art. Like you, you have to wait. You press and you wait just the right amount of time. You, you have to wait right. a certain amount of time, and you have to know your tape machine, and you have to know the album. So it's not. 
It's not the in- most active listening, involvement with the music. On like, no, I will agree. There, the way that you listen to a tape on its original format changes the way that you interact. So, an album almost becomes more relevant because, you know, and and all those other tracks. I wonder if artists took more care to craft their albums back in the days of LPs and tapes so that when you listen to it, you wouldn't get bored and then not turn over, swap sides or, or flip the tape over. I wonder oh, I... If, if there was a bit more care and there was less uh, cruft in albums. Mm. I don't think that was... I, the, the turning over issue applies to um, LPs as well, of course, with records. But that differs greatly from, if you think CDs with random shuffles started started that kind of, the idea of breaking away the kind of album object, didn't they? But certainly MP3s, when they're increasingly sold as a single track as well, which is increasingly the way, or more often than not streamed with a random in a random mix or with a collection of adverts littered all over them, like in a kind of radio sort of way. And I think it's fair to say that I would I suspect the vast majority of people do not listen to an album and certainly skip the tracks they don't like mm. very quickly. That's true. So it might be because I've always when I've listened to albums I've always tried to listen to them all the way through. There might be times where I start in the middle, but I don't tend to like the jump tracks because it kind of I it, I like I I like to think that I that I can listen to an album. And kind of get the whole sense of the whole thing, because it in itself an album is an artistic statement. Each track is an artistic statement, and the album, the container, is also an artistic statement, or it should be. So maybe I, I maybe I I might not listen to music in the same way as other people do. And on that thing, statement, whatever remark. I was I was almost about to sidewalk into somebody else's uh, cliche, so I didn't want to do that. There we go. I, I'm declaring this week's show over like that. Is that okay, Sam? You seem like you're just holding your breath. That's okay. I'm I'm actually watching Adam eat a biscuit and contemplating the mute on his um video stream. Yeah. Fair we 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 have we have definitely made it to the end of the show when I've said his biscuits. That's, that, that is the clear that is the clear indicator. Is listening yes. to the audio of me eating a biscuit relevant to the audio podcast? We will allow our listeners, those the few who make it the whole way to the end of the show, <laughs> can consider that fact in their own time for their own gratification. This this has been the audio podcast episode one one five. You can get the show notes at theaudiopodcast.co.uk/show/slash-one-one-five. And as mentioned before, we're available on YouTube, iTunes, GPodder, and Stitcher. And if you haven't tried this on Stitcher, why not give it a try? You might like it. Hmm. hmm. Anyway, I have been Scott Hewitt, and I've enjoyed the show as always. I'm Samuel Freeman, and I'm Adam Yanch, and if you go to the YouTube version of this show and you can see me eating a biscuit and you can tell what kind of biscuit it is, you get 10 points. 10 points. Goodbye. Biscuit. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye.